Hard to believe, but September is approaching. And that means it's time for our annual Trottier Public Science Symposium. This year it will take place on the 13th and 14th of September. We'll be holding it at Moise Hall McGill. And our theme this year is the use and abuse of science in the world of sports. Lots of interesting th things there to discuss. Uh, obviously, doping is going to be a main feature, and one of our guests will be Dick Pound, former head of the World Doping Agency, and of course, a Canadian and a world-class swimmer, Olympic swimmer in his youth. Uh, we'll also have uh, discussions about nutrition and various quackery uh, processes in the world of sports. If you want to join us, and you should want to join us, uh, you can do it uh, attending live. And uh, we are uh, asking for registration. There's no charge, of course, but we would like to have some idea of, of who is coming. If you want to learn more about it, all you have to do is go to our website, which is mcgill.ca slash OSS. That's mcgill.ca slash OSS. And you will see a description of uh, this year's symposium. And also um, you can um, uh, register there. All you have to do is simple click and you can uh, register. Of course, that's also the website where you can sign up for a weekly uh, newsletter. Uh, we will be uh, also simultaneously uh, putting it uh, on the web so it will be viewable. But, you know, there's nothing like being there live. It's the difference between going to the theater and watching some show on TV. It's not the same. Uh, going to the Bell Center is not the same as watching a hockey game on TV. And uh, going to the Public Science Symposium that we put on live is not the same as watching it while it is being streamed. There's a certain atmosphere uh, that you cannot reproduce. So again, just go to mcgill.ca slash OSS uh, and you will see descriptions uh, of, uh, of the events and you can um, register. And again, there's no obligation for anything. If you register, it is just to give us an idea of the number of people uh, who may be coming. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill's Office for Science and Society, and uh, that's the office that puts on the Public Science Symposium uh, every year. And of course, we do many, many other things. Uh, we have a mandate to separate myth from fact, sense from nonsense, and we do that in uh, many different uh, uh, ways. Uh, what I like to do every Sunday here is pose a couple of questions to you so that you can kind of exercise your brains and uh, appreciate what science is all about. So let me give you a couple of starters here. Why have tires on electric cars been found to produce about 20% more pollution than those on gasoline vehicles? So we're talking about the tires on electric cars being more polluting than the tires on gasoline cars and why? And the second question, to whom did Martin Luther refer when he said, now this is a quote, this fool wishes to reverse the entire science of astronomy, but sacred scripture tells us that Joshua commanded the sun to stand still and not the earth. So that statement was made by Martin Luther. And the question is, who was the, quote, fool 
that he was talking about. If you know the answer to either of those, you call us at 514-790-0800. That, of course, is the phone number that you can call for any questions that you may have. And if you would rather ask your questions or text your answers to my questions, it is simple to do 514-800. So 514-800 for texting, 514-790-0800 for... uh, any comments, questions that you want to make verbally. Uh, you know, I always listen to the news, of course, on CJD here when I'm waiting to to come on, and there were a couple of interesting items there today, weren't there? Uh, for example, this quest for the Loch Ness Monster. And uh, what uh, sort of intrigued me about that news item is that they were describing all the technology that they were going to use to locate the monster and talking about all the things that it could be, uh, some sort of prehistoric sea serpent or even an elephant that fell into the water, all kinds of things. But it wasn't mentioned that uh, one distinct possibility is that it is a myth and that there isn't and never has been a Loch Ness uh, monster. Well, good luck to those who are going to delve into this and try their high-tech equipment to see what they can dredge up. Uh, I will go out on the limb here and make the prediction that they will find nothing because I don't think that there is anything to to find. The other interesting item was about this naked bicycle ride in in Philadelphia. And uh, what caught my attention was uh, the guy who was interviewed and who said that uh, this is a very liberating thing and it is something that uh, everyone must try once in their lifetime. Well, I think that one can have a very happy life without ever trying that. I don't think that going on a naked bike ride uh, contributes uh, anything to society. And I think that there are other ways to connect with the public. I'm not sure exactly what kind of connection they are looking to make there, or what what the point is, but uh, uh, I think it seems to be kind of a silly thing uh, to do. On a more serious note, uh, you may have seen a warning uh, about a recall about um, a couple of uh, eye drops. And uh, the reason for the recall was that uh, they were found to be contaminated by bacteria. And that, of course, is always a very dangerous situation when eye drops are contaminated with bacteria because uh, damage to the eye is is just an awful thing to even um, think about. But what is really ridiculous in this particular case is that the eye drops that are being recalled are eye drops that have never been approved for any purpose. Uh, They are promoted by alternative practitioners. They contain methylsulfonylmethane, which is abbreviated as MSM. There is absolutely no scientific evidence that this is of any value in putting into the eye. They make all kinds of claims about uh, uh, these eye drops enhancing nutrients entrance into the eye. Uh, Zero evidence for that. Uh, They also make some claims about reducing the risk for macular degeneration. Absolutely zilch when it comes to evidence for that. 
So while um, a lot of alternative uh, uh, products, you know, the dietary supplements are in the questionable category, and some of those also may be contaminated by all kinds of things, but that is not as dangerous as uh, putting some bacterial contaminated eye drops in, into your eye. So uh, the recall of this, of course, is obviously uh, warranted. And uh, uh, I mean, don't, uh, don't make the mistake thinking here that this applies to all eye drops. No, this, this applies to eye drops that contain MSM and not even to all of those because it was just some batches that were found. But the fact is that no one should be putting liquid MSM drops in their eyes because there is zero evidence that it does any kind of good. Another interesting note is that Wegmans, which is a very big grocery chain in, in the US uh, and was uh, selling a, a cola called WPOP, and uh, this was um, an alternative to Pepsi and Coke, the same kind of cola, but it was cheaper. So people were buying this at, uh, at Wegmans. And uh, they have made the decision to discontinue this cola, uh, both the uh, unsweetened version and the sweetened version. Uh, the unsweetened version, of course, uh, uh, contains uh, high fructose corn syrup. Uh, and uh, the uh, one that is artificially sweetened is sweetened with aspartame. And uh, the company decided to recall both of those because of the clouds hanging over both aspartame and uh, high fructose corn syrup in terms of, uh, of health. Uh, this is the first time that um, someone has gone out on the limb in this way and uh, just uh, decided they were not going to sell soft drinks. They did not, as far as I know, recall any of the other uh, soft drinks that they sell. But uh, as you know, I've, I've uh, mentioned many times that uh, I think that if there were one thing that could be done in North America in terms of diet to have the greatest benefit, it would be to eliminate soft drinks. And here we go. A step has been taken. Well, I got a <clears throat> partial answer to my question about uh, studying Sar Scarlet, the first Sherlock Holmes story. And indeed, it was published in 1887 in Beaton's Christmas Annual. But I'm still looking for the answer to the, the, the basic question. That was, what is the alkaloid that was mentioned uh, in that story? And uh, it was um, all about a man who takes revenge for the murder of his loved one by using a poison that is described in the story as, quote, an alkaloid extracted from some South American arrow poison. What alkaloid would that be? 514-790-0800 is the number to call, or 514-800 is where you want to text. Uh, yesterday, I was uh, watching uh, John McEnroe's Places. It's, it's uh, a new show and a very good one. John McEnroe interviews other tennis greats. Yesterday, it was Rod Laver and uh, Maria Sharpova. Uh, very entertaining. And uh, in, um, in the interview with Rod Laver, who, uh, of course, is one of the greatest stars ever in tennis, Rocket Rod, uh, he uh, talked about playing in Australia in the terrible heat that you get down there and how he would put 
moistened cabbage leaves on his head under his hat in order to keep cool. That was uh, kind of interesting, and it brought to mind uh, a story that I've dealt with before uh, about uh, cabbage and cabbage leaves. I've always liked stuffed cabbage, you know, but I never thought of stuffing the leaves under a hat or around the human knee, an osteoarthritic knee. Believe it or not, some sufferers claim that they get relief by wrapping their arthritic knee with cabbage leaves. Even more startling, there's some scientific evidence that it may work. Osteoarthritis is a degenerative age-related disease of the joints, most frequently in the hands, hips, and knees. The cartilage, the tissue that cushions bones from rubbing against each other in joints, breaks down. The result is that joints become stiff, painful, and often swollen. There's no cure, but injections of hyaluronic acid or steroids can help. Less invasive methods include oral or topical non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, that is the NSAIDs, or surprisingly, cabbage leaves. German researchers decided to investigate folkloric accounts of the benefits of cabbage leaf wraps by designing a trial in which patients would either wrap their knees for two hours a day in green Savoy cabbage leaves rub their knees with a diclofenac gel or do neither. Diclofenac is an NSAID. The cabbage leaves were flattened with a rolling pin to release juices. Total of 81 patients between age 75 and 55 were included and pain level was monitored by asking subjects to indicate their pain uh, as it fell on a standard visual analog scale. After a month, both the cabbage leaves and the gel reduced pain while there was no change in the subjects who used neither intervention. The cabbage leaves actually did a little better than the gel, but it should be noted that the subjects did not suffer from severe pain to start with, ranking their pain around four on a one to 10 scale with 10 being intense pain. In the cabbage leaf groove, pain was reduced from four to two, but one study, of course, is not enough to hang a hat on. But a study from India has further corroborated the results. In 60 elderly patients, wrapping the knee in cabbage leaves for two hours a day significantly reduced pain after three weeks when compared with the control group. I don't think I will ever be able to eat stuffed cabbage again without thinking of a cabbage knee sandwich. But here's another thought. Is it possible that eating the cabbage may also do some good? Maybe. Cruciferous vegetables like broccoli and cabbage contain glucosinolates, and these compounds release sulforaphane when chewed. In the lab, sulforaphane prevents chondrocytes, that is the cells that form cartilage, from dying. It also has anti-inflammatory effects, and it's actually been found after consuming cruciferous vegetables in synovial fluid the thick liquid located in joints. Of course, eating cabbage does have a consequence. Gases produced during digestion can make a rather dramatic, noisy exit. But you don't have to worry about that if you just wrap your knees with the leaves. Uh, I wonder if uh, Rod Laver ever knew about that. 
wrapping knees in order to reduce pain? Probably not. Uh, but uh, I think this business of putting a moistened cabbage leaf on your head, under your hat, when you're out in the heat, uh, that actually may have some, uh, some benefit. All right, I'm still looking for the answer to my question about what the alkaloid could have been that uh, Arthur Conan Doyle referred to in a study in Scarlet. It was very central to the plot, uh, which was all about taking revenge for a killing. But what was the substance that was used? It is a rather common term, and it is a substance that was used in South America uh, by natives uh, to put uh, a poison on their arrows. And uh, it is indeed a very lethal poison. So Conan Doyle was indeed on the right uh, track. Uh, we went to the uh, market yesterday, the Jean Talon market. Lots of, uh, of course, fresh fruits and vegetables to be found there at this time uh, of the year. And uh, this is also the time when uh, corn comes out. And uh, just as we walked in, we saw a guy carrying out what must have been a bushel of, of, of corn. Uh, well, you know that the taste of freshly picked corn immediately dropped into boiling water. It cannot be matched by cobs that had been sitting around. Uh, so the interesting uh, scientific question comes up of why that would be the case. Well, cells in corn manufacture glucose through photosynthesis. And then various enzymes in the corn link together those glucose molecules into starch. Now in living corn, there's a steady state of glucose because some is always being formed through photosynthesis and some is always being converted into starch. Of course, when you pick the corn, Within a few hours, the chemical composition changes and changes quite dramatically. Why? Because, of course, once you pick it, photosynthesis is no longer going on. So the glucose is no longer being produced. However, the enzymatic reactions that convert the glucose into starch still proceed. So we have more and more starch, less and less glucose. Well, it is the glucose that gives corn its characteristic sweet taste, and it is the starch that makes it taste kind of mealy and uh, less sweet. But when you dump the fresh corn into boiling water, heat inactivates the enzymes that would convert the glucose into starch. So sugar is preserved and uh, the taste is great. How do you cook it? Uh, people have all kinds of different ideas about that. I think the best way to do this is to boil your water, drop in the corn, wait three minutes, take it out, and you should have corn that tastes sweet and not mealy. Uh, on the line is Kenny, one of our regulars. Hey, Kenny. Hi, good afternoon, Dr. Joe. How are you? Hi. Good. 
Good. I got the uh, the answer already. Shakla Holmes, uh, his first substance he used. He used the uh, morph. Uh, he. What but, happened there? Right? Wait, well, you got cut off there for a second, so go ahead. Uh, he, sorry, uh, he used the uh, mor morphine or drugs to use his uh, addiction for uh, substance. No. That's not right. No. All right. So we're still waiting for the uh, correct answer. What was the alkaloid used in a South American arrow poison that Conan Doyle referred to in the classic first Sherlock Holmes story, which was a study in Scarlet? <clears throat> you know, back in 2008, a rocket blasted off a Soyuz rocket, a Russian rocket from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. And uh, the goal was to rendezvous with the International Space Station, which it did. And the rocket carried two Russian cosmonauts and the first ever South Korean astronaut. And that was uh, a female engineer by the name of Soyeon Yi. And uh, she took along uh, something special for that space ride. And that was a batch of kimchi, the traditional fermented Korean national dish. It would remind her of home. If a Korean goes into space, kimchi must go there too, said Kim Sung-soo, a Korean Food Research Institute scientist. Well, the basic ingredient in kimchi is a type of cabbage called Napa cabbage, and it's combined with various vegetables and spices. So a typical recipe would be red pepper powder, garlic, ginger, radish, anchovy juice, sugar, green onion, all of that in addition to the, the cabbage, which has previously been soaked in salt. Well, when all of this is allowed to stand in a covered container, the naturally occurring bacteria on the vegetables, mostly of the lactobacillus variety, convert carbohydrates into lactic acid, and this serves as a preservative by preventing the growth of other bacteria. While there are many varieties of kimchi, depending on the specific vegetables and spices used, they all tend to have a potent fragrance, mostly due to sulfur compounds released from the garlic and the ginger uh, as a result of the bacterial action. Kimchi is regarded both as a probiotic and as a prebiotic food. Probiotics contain bacteria that are believed to be beneficial in terms of health. And prebiotics are components such as fiber that serve as nutrients for the probiotic bacteria. Now there was concern in the space station that kimchi would be exposed to cosmic radiation and its bacteria mutate into a dangerous form. Continued fermentation also produces carbon dioxide, potentially bursting the container and spewing contents all over. Bits of fermented smelly vegetables floating around the interior of the space station, not a desirable prospect. The Korean Atomic Energy Research Institute rose to the challenge of developing safe space kimchi, as they called it, and they resorted to irradiation, a method of preservation that exposes food to gamma rays or electron beams to kill bacteria. The kimchi that traveled into space contained no live bacteria, so there was no concern about continued fermentation. 
As a bonus, the pungent smells were also reduced. While Dr. Yi admitted that the texture and taste of the space kimchi were not quite up to its earthly counterparts, nevertheless, it was enjoyed by her international colleagues on account of its spices, and she treated them to some kimchi. You know, it seems that taste buds do not function the same way in a low-gravity situation. And indeed, astronauts have often complained about food tasting bland. <clears throat> well, it turns out that the taste of kimchi depends not only on its components, but also on the container in which it is produced. Fermented vegetables became a staple in Korea over a thousand years ago with the observation that they would last longer than fresh vegetables. Of course, it wasn't known at the time that this was due to the lactic acid produced by bacteria creating an acidic environment that was uninhabitable for most other microorganisms. Traditionally, kimchi was fermented in clay pots called ongis that were buried in the ground for several weeks to maintain a consistent temperature and provide optimal conditions for fermentation. Well, today, kimchi is mass-produced with the fermentation carried out in glass, steel, or plastic vessels. And wouldn't you know it, kimchi aficionados, and there are a lot of those, claim that fermentation in ongis produces a superior product, and modern science seems to back up that view. Because now researchers in Korea fermented kimchi for three to four weeks at four degrees Celsius, in glass, steel, polyethylene, and polypropylene containers, and compared the results with kimchi that was fermented in traditional ongis. A panel of tasters judged the taste of the traditional kimchi to be superior, as well as its texture that was evaluated in terms of the springiness of the cabbage. Springiness, yeah, that's a term that they used to describe the, the cabbage, especially when you bend it and it springs back that's the desired texture. When it becomes limp, uh, you don't want that. Anyway, it turns out that lactic acid bacteria proliferated more readily in the ongus and crowd crowded out the putrefactive bacteria, and that resulted in a longer shelf life for the, uh, for the kimchi. Uh, the Korean scientists attributed these uh, observations to the porosity of the clay container. A rapid buildup of carbon dioxide suffocates lactic acid bacteria, but the porosity of the ongus allows the carbon dioxide to pass through as it is formed. And by contrast, the other containers are far less permeable. And unless they are periodically burped by lifting the cover, the gas builds up and impairs the multiplication of the lactic acid bacteria. And the fewer such bacteria, the less antioxidants and anti-cancer compounds produced, and the smaller the chance that once the bacteria are ingested, they will crowd out disease-causing bacteria in the gut. Well, that's the, the story of, 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 of kimchi. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not uh, an expert on the taste of, of kimchi because uh, it contains uh, anchovy oil, and I have an allergy to, to fish. Uh, although the, the truth is that I have eaten kimchi 
before I knew that there was anchovy taste uh, paste in it, uh, I did have kimchi in Korean restaurant and, and nothing happened. So I, uh, I mean, my fish allergy is not very severe anyway. And I, I, I suspect that the amount of uh, anchovy in there is, is very little. Still, uh, I think I will stick to sauerkraut that doesn't have any anchovies in it. Uh, that's it. We've run out of time. Remember to go to mcgill.ca slash OSS to sign up for our public science symposium. September 13 and 14 is when it happens. All the details are there. You click and you can register and uh, we'll have a lot of fun because we're going to take a look at the use and abuse of, of uh, science in the sporting world. And uh, we will be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. The U.S. Open lives on TV.